Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. Well, this morning we're going to do something a little bit unique that I haven't done too much. Uh, I want to let you in a little bit on my sermon preparation process. Uh, one of the things that I do when I begin studying a text before I preach it uh, is I ask a series of questions of the text. Sometimes by asking those questions, you get answers that you wouldn't have gotten had you not asked them. And so today, I want to show you a bit of what that process looks like as we approach our text in Luke chapter 8. And the question I want us to ask is, what does this text teach us about Jesus? And so we're going to uh, read a few verses and then pause and just ask that question over and over as we go uh, throughout. And I hope that through this we'll get a glimpse of uh, the heart of our Savior as a result. Uh, As you know, we're continuing our study through the Gospel of Luke. We're in Luke chapter 8, and our text this morning comes on the heels of two very dramatic events in the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, Two weeks ago, you remember, we looked at the account of Jesus calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee. He and his disciples were in a boat uh, in the middle of that terrible storm, and he just speaks, and the storm instantly stops. Then last week, we saw Jesus cast out thousands of demons from a man uh, into some pigs nearby. A very unusual uh, story, dramatic to say the least. All these pigs go running off the cliff. Uh, and so these, these two stories uh, set up today's text. So that, today's text follows uh, right on the heels of those. In fact, these all appear to have taken place in the very same day. Uh, Quite an eventful day in the life of Jesus, Uh, but the storm, the the casting out of the demons, and the raising of Jairus' daughter all seem to have happened in the same day. Uh, Jesus had taught for a while in Galilee that morning, and then he had gotten into a boat with his disciples, sailed through the storm to the other side of the lake, where he cast out the demons out of the maniac there, Uh, and now they're coming back to Galilee from the other side, and when they land ashore in Galilee, there's a crowd of people waiting for them. Verse 40 says, it came to pass when Jesus returned, that's referring to him coming back across the lake, the people gladly received him, for they were all waiting for him. So there's a crowd of people, they're watching as the boat gets closer, anticipating uh, the arrival of Christ. And then a strange thing happens in verse 41, where Luke writes, Behold, and again, we've mentioned this before, whenever Luke gives us that word behold as a narrator, uh, that's his way of getting our attention, that something unusual is about to happen. Check this out, guys, this is crazy, look at this. Okay, so verse 41, Behold, there came a man named Jairus. He was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him that he would come into his house. Now, this is very strange. Uh, Jairus is a synagogue official. He was in charge of organizing the services at the synagogue. He would select uh, the scripture reading, the music to be sung, those types of things. He was in uh, some of an elevated position, especially in that culture. Uh, He would have been highly respected in order to be selected for such a position. And here he comes, falling at the feet of Jesus and begging him to come to his house. Uh, You you know already in Luke's gospel, we've seen that the religious crowd hated Jesus. Uh, The Pharisees and, and the Sadducees and the scribes, they all wanted Jesus dead at at this point. They were plotting uh, his death already. And so for a religious man like Jairus to come in humility and fall at Jesus' feet would be a very uh, strange thing to the people watching. And so the sight of this man acting in this manner would have shocked the people in the crowd. And the reason for this is given in verse 42, why he did this. It says he had one only daughter about 12 years of age, and she lay a dying 
But as he went, the people thronged him. And so now we understand uh, why this man showed such humility, why he came to Jesus in this way. He was desperate. Uh, His 12-year-old daughter was about to die. And so he comes to Christ sort of as his last option. Uh, he, he can't do anything for his daughter. She apparently had some sort of illness, and uh, it was apparent to him that, that she was about to die. And so in desperation, he comes to Jesus. He had no doubt heard that Jesus could perform miracles. Uh, maybe he had even heard of the raising of uh, uh, the man back in Nain, if you remember that story, where Jesus interrupted that funeral procession and raised the man from the dead. And perhaps that, little, uh, that story gave him that little glimmer of hope that maybe Jesus could do the same for him. And so at this point, I want us just to pause and ask, what does this teach us about Jesus? I think the first thing we learn is perhaps an obvious point, but one that I think is worth pointing out. Uh, Jesus cares about human suffering. Jesus could have proven his deity in many ways, and some of us think that that's what the miracles were. It was just Jesus showing that he's God. Uh, certainly that's a part of it. But Jesus could have uh, flown up in the air and done a few spins and come back down and proven that he was God. Uh, he could have uh, created something. You know, he could have said cow, and there's a cow. You know, he could have done some, a lot of things to prove his deity. But he chose to miraculously feed hungry people. Uh, he chose to heal sick people. He chose to raise the dead. He chose to cast demon, demons out of those who were oppressed by them. Jesus cares about our suffering. And so he begins to follow Jairus to his house in order to heal this girl who is very near death. But then in verse 43, there's an interruption. A woman in the crowd, Luke says of her in verse 43, that she's had an issue of blood 12 years. So as long as this this girl, Jairus' daughter, had been alive, this woman had been suffering with this plague. And it says she had spent all her living upon physicians, neither could be healed of any. Uh, We don't know exactly what this woman's uh, issue was. Uh, Some sort of hemorrhaging that had gone on for 12 years could have been, uh, some of the reading that I was saying, uh, that I was looking at said it it was most likely a thyroid tumor or something like that uh, that caused this issue. Something that nowadays you can solve pretty easily with surgery, but back then, uh, not so much. And so not only would this have caused physical problems, but as a Jew, this also would have made her perpetually unclean. According to Levitical law, uh, she would not be allowed in the temple or the synagogue. She would have been excommunicated because of her uncleanness. She also would have been an outcast of society because anyone who came in contact with her uh, would have been unclean. And so she couldn't uh, hug her children if she had any. She couldn't you know, be around her family. She would have been uh, basically a leper. She would have been outside of uh, the rest of society because she was ceremonially unclean. Luke also mentions that she had spent all of her money on doctors, and she could not be healed by any of them. Uh, many of you know the frustration of spending money on doctors uh, only to have them not be able to do anything for you. I think I've told this story before. When I was in college, uh, I had an issue with my leg where just every day it got worse and worse, and eventually I couldn't walk. I was out of work for several weeks, uh, maybe even a couple of months now that I think about it. But um, I couldn't figure out what to do about it, and so I, I went to the hospital, because people have been urging me, go to the hospital, you need to get that looked at. Uh, and so I went to the hospital, and they did an ultrasound on my leg to see if there was any blood clots or anything, and they said there wasn't, and so they sent me home, uh, and they had no idea. Uh, and that was like a $1,000 bill for nothing. Uh, and then uh, I went to a doctor. Somebody recommended me, you got to go check out this doctor. He really knows what he's doing. So I went to the doctor. Uh, he gave me some pills, sent me home, said he didn't really know what it was either. Uh, and so another bill and no help. Uh, then my brother told me, you need to go to a chiropractor because chiropractors know stuff doctors don't know. And he was uh, very persuasive that chiropractors would be able to help me out. So I went to the chiropractor. 
uh, which is a very strange experience if you've ever been to one. They put you on this table and they crack you all over. Uh, and then I, I got up and walked out and I felt great for about 20 seconds. Uh, and then the pain came right back. And so another bill and no help. And then uh, weirdly, a few weeks later, it just stopped all of a sudden. Best I can figure, it was my sciatic nerve uh, that was acting up and then just kind of stopped on its own. Uh, but that is a very frustrating experience to spend money on doctors and get no help. Uh, and I, I'm sure that if we asked around the room, some of you have had those types of experiences where you've had something and you've gone to doctor after doctor after doctor and they just can't seem to help your problem. This woman had uh, done this for 12 years. I can't imagine the frustration of 12 years spending all your money, all of your resources trying to get help uh, and not being able to be helped. This poor woman had spent all her money for years trying to get better, but nothing was helping. In fact, uh, Mark's account says that after spending all her money on doctors, she only got worse. Uh, Luke says it a little bit softer because he's a doctor. Uh, but if you read Mark's account, it says that she had suffered many things of the physicians and was made worse. Uh, but she had an idea. She heard that Jesus was coming by that way, and she uh, no doubt had heard of his miraculous power to heal the sick. And she thought this might be her chance uh, to be cured. Matthew records her thoughts this way in verse 21. It says, She said within herself, If I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. She had so much confidence in Jesus' power that she thought if she could just grab the edge of his coat as he walked by, that would be enough for her to be healed. And Luke says in verse 44 that she came behind him and touched the border of his garment and immediately her issue of blood staunched. Uh, she touched his cloak and was instantly healed. Uh, Mark's account says it this way, straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. She immediately felt it. She knew right away that she had been healed. Now remember, Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house. Uh, he's got to raise this girl, uh, at least at this point, she, the girl's about to die, and so he's no doubt rushing to get to Jairus' house. But he stops walking, and he turns to the crowd in verse 45, and he says, Who touched me? Uh, when all denied, Peter and they that were with him said, Master, the multitude thronged thee and pressed thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? Uh, who, who touched me? Jesus asks. And Peter points out that there's a crowd of people all, all bumping into you. What do you mean, who touched you? Everybody touched, is touching you. Uh, but Jesus knew that someone had intentionally touched him to receive healing. Verse 46, Jesus said, Somebody hath touched me, for I perceive that virtue is gone out of me. Uh, that word virtue uh, really should be translated power. It's the word dunamis in Greek where we get dynamite. Uh, he had perceived that this uh, miracle-working power had left him. In verse 47, it says, When the woman saw that she was not hid, she came trembling and falling down before him. And she declared unto him before all the people for what cause she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And she was hoping to touch him and to be unnoticed. Uh, maybe she was afraid because of the fact that she, wasn't, uh, she was unclean. She wasn't supposed to be in a crowd of people like this. And perhaps she was fearful of what the consequences would be. Somebody like her was supposed to say, away from people so they don't defile them. Jesus responds to her in verse 48 and says, Daughter, be of good comfort. By the way, that's the only place in the New Testament where Jesus calls somebody daughter. Be of good comfort. Thy faith hath saved thee, or hath made thee whole. Go in peace. And that, that phrase there, thy faith hath made thee whole, uh, it is the Greek word sozo, which means to save. Uh, your faith has saved you. Now, it can be translated made thee whole because in this context it's talking about physical healing, but uh, I'm convinced that this is actually referring to salvation. I think in this context, Jesus is saying that she had been saved. He calls her daughter. 
and he says, your faith has saved you. Uh, you may remember back in chapter 7 when we talked about uh, the, the dinner party at Simon the Pharisee's house, uh, the, the prostitute who came in and, and fell at Jesus' feet, washing his, his feet with her tears. Uh, he says something very similar to her in chapter 7, verse 48. He said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? He said to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. Now the woman in chapter 7 wasn't healed of anything. Uh, she didn't have any sort of sickness. It was her sins that were forgiven, and she was saved by her faith. And that's the very same phrase that's used here of this woman uh, in the crowd in Luke 8. She had been saved by her faith. Uh, Jesus healed a lot of people who didn't have faith. There's a lot of people in the New Testament that they didn't necessarily believe that Jesus could heal them, and yet he did. I mean, uh, Jairus' daughter, I don't think, had a whole lot of faith. Uh, she, she was dead by that point. And so I think what, what Jesus is saying to this woman is that this simple act of reaching out to Jesus' cloak was the faith that saved this woman. Back to our text, verse 48, Jesus says, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole, or hath saved thee. Go in peace. And now again, we need to pause and ask, what does this teach us about Jesus? I think we can say not only does Jesus care about our suffering, but he especially cares about eternal suffering. He wasn't content to just heal this woman's physical problem. I remember, as soon as she touched his garment, she was instantly healed. Uh, Jesus could have just kept walking. He didn't need to stop. Uh, and again, he's, he's in a hurry. He's trying to get to Jairus' house. But he stops long enough to assure this woman that not only had she received cleansing, but her sins were forgiven. Jesus cared about this woman's physical pain, but he cared even more about her relationship with God. And so Jesus cares about our suffering. He also cares about eternal suffering, especially. Verse 49, While he yet spake, there cometh one from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Thy daughter is dead. Trouble not the master. And this delay in getting to Jairus' house may have been the reason that this girl died uh, before he could get there. Now, of course, we know Jesus is going to raise her from the dead. We've seen that at the end of the story. But at this point, I just want to make one more observation about what this text teaches us about Jesus, and that is Jesus is not a respecter of persons. Uh, Maybe may a strange phrase, but that, that simply means there's no important and unimportant people from his perspective. Uh, he stopped to help this woman who would have been the lowliest of the lows. She was an outcast from society, even though uh, somebody like Jairus, a very important man, was wanting him to hurry to his house to heal his daughter. And yet he took time to help this woman. We might think of Jairus as more important than this woman. Uh, certainly we would think that his need was more urgent. Uh, this woman had been suffering for 12 years. What's another 15 minutes? Can't she just wait? Uh, but the girl was dying. This was far more urgent. And yet Jesus stopped to help her. Paul said in Romans chapter 2, there is no respect of persons with God. And in that context, Paul is talking about how Jews and Gentiles are seen as the same from God's perspective. There's no upper echelon of humanity. Everybody is equal in that sense. He doesn't see Jews as better than Gentiles. In Ephesians, Paul wrote, Ye masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven. Neither is there respect of persons with him. And here, Paul is making the point that from God's perspective, he sees the master and slave as equals. Your race is irrelevant to God. Your status is irrelevant to God. He sees every person, regardless of social standing, as an image bearer of God. There's not more important people and less important people because God is not a respecter of persons. After receiving the news that Jairus' daughter had died, Jesus responds in verse 50. He says, when he, when he heard it, he answered, saying, Fear not. Believe only, and she shall be made whole. 
Uh, you, you believe that I could heal her. Now don't give up. Keep believing in me. Uh, don't stop believing. Makes me want to break out in song, but I'll spare you. Uh, verse 51, when he came into the house, he suffered no man to go in, save Peter and James and John and the father and the mother of the maiden. This is the first time so far in Luke's gospel that Jesus separates these three from the rest of the twelve. Uh, he seems to have this inner circle with Peter, James, and John. We'll see that throughout the book, uh, where he separates them from the rest and spends, uh, spends a little bit extra focus on these three. Uh, Jesus taught thousands. We see that throughout the Gospels. But he chose 12 specifically to disciple. And from those 12, he chose three to mentor. And this raising of Jairus' daughter is the beginning of that more uh, exclusive training for these three. Matthew and Mark's account of this same event gives some detail about what was going on in Jairus' house when they arrived. Uh, Verse 23 of Matthew 9 says, When Jesus came into the ruler's house, he saw the minstrels and the people making a noise. Uh, And here we need to give a little bit of background, because if you go into a funeral home today, if somebody just died, you go into a funeral home, it's very quiet. Uh, People wear dark colors, it's very quiet, very uh, somber. People talk very quietly, if at all. Uh, Not so with a Jewish funeral. The atmosphere is very different. People would rip their clothes. Uh, In fact, the family were required to rip their clothes. There was, uh, in the Mishnah, there's 39 rules about how to rip your clothes when someone dies, uh, because that's just what Jews love. They love their rules. Uh, But part of it was you had to rip the clothes directly over the heart. It was a sign of grief that you were grieving the loss of this loved one. There would be flutes playing, uh, very loud, dissonant notes, so that... uh, basically just to set the mood of of this grief and mourning. You would also have professional mourners there who would be paid to wail and to shriek loudly. Uh, All of this was an expression of sorrow over losing a loved one. Mark describes it this way in chapter 5. He cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and seeth the tumult and them that wept and wailed greatly. So that's the scene of this house. Very strange to us, uh, but very typical in that day of a, a funeral. So Jesus comes in. And in verse 52, he stops all of this commotion. He says, They all wept and bewailed her, but he said, Weep not, she is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. And now you know these are paid mourners because they go from crying about the girl's death to laughing uh, instantly. They don't care about her. They're just there for their money. But they knew that this girl was dead. They knew that she wasn't asleep. So what is Jesus saying? Why is he saying that uh, she's not dead, she's only sleeping? To answer that, we need to jump to another occasion in John 11 where Jesus raised a dead person, Lazarus, very famous story. Uh, John 11, verse 11 says, These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Uh, Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking a rest and sleep. Then Jesus said unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. So when Jesus said Lazarus was sleeping, the disciples took that literally and thought, well, okay, he's sleeping. What's the problem? Uh, But Jesus was telling them, no, he's dead. And he clarifies that later. So when Jesus says he's sleeping, he's indicating not that he's not actually dead, but that he's only temporarily dead. He would soon awake from the dead. Uh, Lazarus, in fact, had been in the grave for four days by the time Jesus got there. He was definitely dead. Uh, when Jesus raised him. And it's the same with Jairus' daughter. She is dead. Uh, They knew that she was dead, but Jesus knew that he was about to raise her from the dead. And so because this death was not permanent, he refers to it as merely sleeping. Verse 54 says, He put them all out and took her by the hand and called, saying, Maid, arise. And her spirit came again, and she arose straightway, and he commanded to give her meat. 
Notice after raising the girl from the dead, he's concerned that she'd be given food. Uh, we see a glimpse again into the tender heart of our Savior, wanting to make sure that this girl was cared for. Uh, verse 56 records the reaction of the parents. says they were astonished, but he charged them that they should tell no man what was done. Uh, you can't really keep that a secret. I mean, all of these mourners that knew the girl was dead would have seen her walking around the next day. How do you keep that quiet? Uh, they would have had some questions for sure. Matthew 9 says that the fame hereof went abroad into all the land. And so the news of this miraculous raising uh, spread very quickly. We saw earlier in chapter 8 that Jesus had power over natural disasters uh, when he commanded the storm to be still. Then last week we saw Jesus' power over demons when he commanded thousands of them to leave the maniac of Gadara. And now Luke wraps this chapter up by showing us that Jesus has power over death. Death is the enemy of all humanity, and Jesus just displayed that he has the ability to overcome it. And this power will be put on display at the end of the Gospels, of course, when Jesus himself dies, uh, but then rises again from the dead three days later. And he rises again from the dead, proving that he has the ability to overcome death. And this really is the Christian hope, that if Jesus can rise from the dead and overcome death, then he can overcome our death as well. First Corinthians, or I'm sorry, uh, First Thessalonians 4.13 says, I, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. And notice there, Paul is picking up on the language of Jesus, uh, that we don't die, we sleep, meaning we'll awake soon. Uh, death is not the end for the Christian. It's, it's not permanent. Death is merely sleep. I read this this week. Uh, no longer must the mourners weep, nor call their departed children dead. For death is transformed into sleep, and every grave becomes a bed. Uh, Arthur Brisbane compared death to a group of caterpillars. I like this analogy. A group of caterpillars uh, carrying their dead caterpillar friend in, their, in his cocoon, uh, sort of like a coffin. And they're having this funeral. They're all dressed in black, very, talking very quietly, very sad. Uh, and they're about to bury their friend. And then all of a sudden, the cocoon breaks open, and out comes the butterfly. They're crying because they think that it's the end for their friend, that it's death, but it's merely sleep. And when that cocoon breaks open and the butterfly awakes from that temporary sleep, that, that's what death is like for those who are in Christ. Uh, it looks like the end, but for us it's not. The Christian hope is that death is merely sleep. So what do we learn, from this, uh, learn about Jesus from this text? Number one, Jesus cares about our suffering. Jesus cares especially about eternal suffering. He doesn't just want to heal our physical pain and send us on our way. He wants our sins forgiven. He wants to give us eternal life which is why he came to defeat death for us. And then Jesus is no respecter of persons. He doesn't come to save uh, good people or people that the world esteems as important. Uh, Jesus came to save whosoever will repent and believe the gospel. And if you come to him in faith, he promises that your faith will save you. He demonstrated by his resurrection from the dead that he has the power to overcome death for you. And so the ultimate question for each of us is, are we in Christ? Have you fallen at the feet of Christ in humility like Jairus? Uh, have you reached out in faith like the woman in the crowd? If you have, you don't need to fear death, because for you it's only sleep. Father, I pray that you would uh, once again renew our hope in you and in the gospel, that you came, that you died, that you rose again, so that we could be forgiven and have eternal life with you in heaven. We pray, God, for each one in this room, that if there's one that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, that you would uh, work in their heart even this morning to humble them and to bring them to yourself. Help them to call out to you in faith 
and ask for your forgiveness, God, that comes through repentance and faith. For those of us who are Christians, God, I pray that, uh, like Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians, we wouldn't sorrow as those who have no hope. We, have, uh, we should have a different perspective on death, not only for those loved ones of ours who die, but for our own death. We shouldn't fear death as though it's the, uh, the end of everything. Help us to understand that death is only sleep. God, I pray that each one of us would uh, be reminded of the heart of our Savior, that he loves us, that he cares about our suffering and our trials, and that you seek our good. And I pray that you would help each of us to, to see you more clearly for the loving and wonderful Savior that you are. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.